are listening to Cold Lake Community Church Podcast. I hope today's message inspires you. Cold Lake Community Church, a place where families come together. The title of my message this morning is we're following our series on God, and today uh, it's God is love. I don't know if you saw the theme of love in our worship today, but love is such an amazing thing. It's something that every single one of us desire in our life. It's something that every one of us have a longing for, but again, if we just stop and we realize that through our life experiences, we have got different different ideologies that have come into our lives that we then project on God, whether they're right or whether they're wrong. And it's just kind of who we are in the, in the upbringing that we had. Um, the, again, the book that we're kind of following on this one is, is I read a book called The Good and the Beautiful God, and um, there's, it, it just really hit my heart when I was reading this for Crest. I'm like, you know what, I need to, I need to talk about this at our church. With God and love, it opens up with a, an illustration that I think is really important to share. And it talks about how the author had a friend who was a pastor, and he had a phone call one day. And in the phone call, this lady on the phone says to this pastor, Hi, I'm just wondering if I could come to your church. And the pastor laughed and said, Well, that's a silly question. Of course you can come to the church. She says, Well, before you answer that, she says, I want you to know that I'm a teenager. And I had a boyfriend, and we became pregnant. And when my boyfriend found out that I was pregnant, he wanted nothing to do with me. And he asked that I have an abortion, and I said no. And he left me, and I told our church, and I said to my church, like, would you allow me to speak to the girls in the youth group to tell them the importance of abstinence and the importance of following what the word of the Lord says? And the pastor says, no, I don't want you to share at our church because I'm afraid that your lifestyle will rub off on the people instead of your message rubbing off on the people. So she says, I totally understand that. And she sat there. And then when the baby was born, she went to the pastor and said, would you dedicate my child before the Lord? And he says, there's no way in our church we will ever dedicate an illegitimate child. And that broke her heart. And she left and then she's called this pastor and saying, that is why I'm asking, would you allow me to come into your church? Now, some people are thinking here, what an evil pastor. You know, someone who doesn't know the, the truth or, or who speaks out, out of judgments. But the real story is there is a false narrative here about God, that he only loves us when we're good. God's love for you is consistent. It's everlasting. He is absolutely crazy about you. So how do we really know that God loves us, whether we're good or whether we're bad? Whether we do what he asks us to or whether we drop the ball? You open up your Bibles this morning to Romans 8. We can see this. Can everything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity, or persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger? Or threatened with death. 
As the scripture says, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despise all these things. Overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loves us. And I'm convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is something that I really had to learn probably early youth pastor age. Because whenever something would go wrong, I I just would find myself just being so heaped up with guilt because now I'm a pastor and I should know better, and, and I had this higher standard, and any time I tripped and any time I'd fall, I just felt like, you know what, i got to leave ministry. i gotta, I got to do this, i got to do that, because, because God is going to smack me. And I'd run and hide, and there's people in this room, Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they ran and hide from God. And God is like, no, that's not how I work. Because we have this this preconceived idea that if we're bad, if we don't measure up, that God is going to get us. But yet nothing can separate us from his love. God's love is immense. When we fall short of his glory, we just need to come before him and say, Lord, I've sinned, and I ask you in the name of Jesus to forgive me and wash me clean. Jesus' time on earth was totally controversial. I'm sure if Jesus was around today, he would offend each and every one of us with our preconceived notions and our ideologies. Check out what happened in Matthew 9, starting in chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many other tax collectors and other uh, disreputable sinners. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor, but sick people do. Then he added, now go and learn the meaning of scripture. I want you to show you mercy, not offer sacrifices, for I've come to call those who think they are righteous, but they know they are sinners. A tax collector was hated individual. Not only did Jesus dine with him, but he tells to follow him and he makes him a disciple. What is it that keeps you from going before the Lord and embracing that unending love that he has for each and every one of us? For if nothing can separate you from sin, from his love, then why are you hiding from him? See, the irony of this story is the Pharisees are just as sick and sinful as the tax collectors, but they fail to admit it. The tax collectors, on the other hand, have no pretense. They are used to being called sinners, so they question is why they're invited to the party. Brendan Manning, an amazing author, says, here's the revelation, bright as the evening star. Jesus comes for sinners, for those as outcasts as tax collectors, and for those caught up in dirty dirty choice and failed dreams. He comes from corporate executives. He comes for street people. He comes for superstars. He comes for farmers, hookers, addicts, Canada Revenue Agencies, AIDS victims, used car salesmen, and yes, even fish and game wardens. 
I changed his quote slightly. Every Christian generation tried to dim the blinding brightness of the meaning because the gospel seems too good to be true. Why does it seem too big good to be true? Because Jesus' narrative of unconditional acceptance goes against the very grain of performance-based narrative that is drilled deep down inside each one of us. Remember I shared last week, as a parent, and we're a little kid, we're taught through discipline that when we get do well, we're rewarded. And when we do bad, we're disciplined. In school, when we do well, we're given an A. And when we do bad, we're given an F. It is so part of our culture that it's just natural for us to pick that up and carry that into our relationship with Jesus Christ. But yet, as Cindy was sharing earlier this morning, the kingdom of God is based on an upside-down kingdom. Um, Lance and I were chatting about this last week, and he asked if I could share what I was telling you, so what I was telling him. And you know when God kind of gives you that aha download thing, and it's like, this is amazing, this is changing the world, oh my goodness, I've known this forever, but I never really knew this, and you try to tell someone, and it's kind of, eh, it's like, wow, when God and I were talking about it, it was a lot more amazing, but the only thing different is you, so it must be your problem, no, so I'll try to explain the thought line I was having when we were discussing this, so if you think about the Garden of Eden, and God created Adam out of the dust, and he breathed in him his breath. Like that alone was blowing my mind for hours. The breath of God is in a human. And they got to walk with God. They got to talk with him. They got to hold his hand. They would see him and be like, hi, God. Hi, creator. Hi, awesome one. And they got to have that kind of a relationship where they could actually see his face and touch him. And I'm just like, that's amazing. And so God, because he is love, didn't want robots. He didn't want minions. Minions seem to be very cool right now because of the movie Despicable Me, but they're not cool. They're, they're still minions. God didn't want that. He wanted relationship. And so he created man and woman. He, put, he had them in the garden, and he had relationship with them, face-to-face -face relationship. And so because he didn't want them to be robots, he had to give them that choice. And the choice wasn't, are you going to obey or disobey? The choice was, are you going to trust me? And that's what I'm learning in my life, that God is so much less about what we do and so much more about who we are. And once we become so soaked in, his, in trusting him, then what we do bears the big fruit, bears the 60, 90 you know, not just the smaller portion. So he creates them. He says, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so the knowledge of good and evil, that's where performance came from. Because what did Satan do to them? He said to them, did God really say this? And he really wanted them to say that, you know, if you do this, you'll be like God. And God knows that. So the deception was, you can't trust God. And that's what it was really about. The enemy came in there and he said, God doesn't want you to be like him. He planted those seeds of deception that said, you know, God's holding back on you. He doesn't want the best from you. God's got another angle here. And so that's why 
they ate it thinking, well, maybe it does look like it's good to eat. And, and then through their mind, they rationalized. They didn't go back to, but we see him and, and we know him and he's good. They made the decision based on their head. So all of a sudden, everything became, the knowledge of evil wasn't the biggest problem because that's kind of obvious, but the knowledge of good is what brought us to that place of performance. And it brings out in our life today things like, if I do more good deeds than I do bad deeds, I'll make it to heaven. And I'm telling you, higher than 50% of our nation really believes that, if I'm a good person. If you try to tell people who have really no major needs in their life about the Lord, their response usually will be, but I'm a good person. And so that deception from the garden has carried on through. And like Lance said, with discipline, with school, we have that mindset of, you know what, I haven't been very good lately. If I start being more good, if I do better things, bigger things, if I'm kinder, if I donate time, if I do this, and it all comes back to that tree. And that knowledge of good really put that wedge in their trust relationship. And so when Jesus died on the cross for us, it was so awesome because all of a sudden, we don't, we don't, we didn't just receive salvation, not just, but what was restored was that whole Garden of Eden. His spirit, that breath that he put into Adam, that life and that holding his hand and getting to walk and talk with him was completely restored. Now that living God is inside of us. That spirit of the living God, that power, that love, that, that all that he is to the portion that you can trust him, that you can allow him in your life, that's been restored. So when we're disciplining our kids at home, they're getting a bit out older now, so it has more to do with, you know, grounding, not playing with friends, and no electronic things. And, and I tell you, like, they start feeling really ripped off. They, they don't know at the first few hours or the first day of being grounded, they aren't even sure what they're supposed to do. They're just kind of like, am I allowed to talk to my brother? Yeah, you can still talk to people. But, you know, they, they feel so alienated. They feel weird. And so we had this uh, situation. I won't tell you all the details. But I was putting Mackenzie to bed, and she was so... She has this huge thing of justice, right? So if she feels like she is punished unfairly, my goodness, this will exhaust you. You want to go back on your punishment because you think it'll just be easier. But we're standing really strong and firm because we know that if, if we want her to be a great leader, she's going to have to learn some humbling lessons. Anyway, so I'm putting her to bed, and she is so against this punishment. And I finally looked her in the eyes, and I said, Mackenzie, listen. The lie the enemy is going to want to tell you when I walk out of this room is that mommy and daddy do not love you. That is a lie. We love you no matter what you do. We love you no matter what your punishment is. We love you if you make the same mistake a thousand times. That is not going to change. So don't be tempted to believe a lie that you're not loved because you have a discipline. And something just clicked in her. And she said, thank you, mom. That's exactly what I was thinking. And I think we get the idea that when they had to leave the garden, that God stayed in the garden and they left. But the truth is that he went with them. 
and that he was just as grieved that the relationship was changing, and that's why he knew that his son would come. And for us who would choose to partake of that, it would be restored. But the worst thing would have happened would if they had eaten of the tree of life in that sinful state and been like that forever. And so it's sometimes his kindness that we misconstrue as our circumstances aren't adding up. But hands down, he is the God of love. He is love. Thanks, Cindy. Jesus is showing us here that God loves sinners as they are and not as they should be. This narrative can be found in most known scriptures. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. John 3.17, God sent his son in the world not to judge the world but to save it through him. This passage has brought comfort to countless people and considered by the summation of the entire Bible. For here Jesus explains the reason for the mission. Jesus does not say here, for God so loved a few, or some, or even many. He said God loved the world. And as the world, as we know it, is full of sinners. Therefore, God must love sinners. He didn't say God loved the good people, the righteous people, the religious people that he gave his son. He said God loved all, which I think is pretty inclusive. In fact, Paul echoes this in Romans 5.8. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us, well, we were still sinners. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son? See, the prodigal son is one that I think we all know. It's about a boy who was really disrespectful. And he went up to his father and he says, you know what, I'm done being a son here. I want my inheritance. I want it now. The dad was a wealthy man. And his dad says, you know what, son, if this is what you want, I'm going to give you your request. And he gives him a large sum of money, and the prodigal son goes away, and he parties, and he, and he uh, hangs out with the wrong crowd, and he, he gets himself into a financial stupor when he finds out that when the r- money runs out, the friends leave him, and he finds himself in a, in a, in a farm wait, working with the pigs, eating their leftovers. It's not a good scene. And so often when we look at this story, we look at the story of the prodigal son. But today I want to look at all of them. See, there's also the father in there. And one of the, I believe one of the most beautiful scriptures in all of the Bible is found in Luke chapter 15, verse 20. It says, but while the son was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. See, that shows us that the father was not just out there working, but he was looking for the son. He saw him a long way off, and he was excited about his return. We're given the sense that the father was just, perhaps every day, when he sees the son, he's filled with that compassion. This is no small detail. It tells us about the character and the heart of God. God looks at us with compassion, even when we have done the very worst to God that we could possibly do. See, the boy's father, by Jewish law, had a right to take his son before the elders and have him stoned. When the boy came home, he had a right to be able to say, you are no longer my son, you've got your portion, and call upon the elders to stone him to death. But yet, what does the father do? He runs out and embraces him and kisses him and hugs him. He puts a a ring on his finger and a robe around him, sandals on his feet. That is our God. It doesn't make sense. 
But yet God loved this son so much that he went out and found him. Forgiveness is a byproduct of, of love. God has forgiven each of us so, uh, so with, uh, God has forgiven us with so much that he wants us to take that and emulate it. Matthew 6 says, but if you refuse to forgive others, your father will not forgive you. Forgiveness, there's power in that. And we can't just take it lightheartedly. That's a strong warning. Sometimes it's so hard when we've been wrong to forgive, isn't it? You know one thing for me that, that I kind of held on to for a long time? Is we were engaged, Cindy and I, and I was working as a construction worker trying to build up a little bit of nest egg for us, and this friend of Effie and Hayward's came by, and we were working as the children's pastor in this church, and we, had to, we came home from service, and we ate, and then we had to be back by 2 o'clock to run this, this afternoon children's program. And this girl came over who, again, was a friend of Effie and Hayward's, and she had a meal with us, and we were laughing and talking and all this kind of stuff. And all of a sudden, about four days later, Cindy gets a letter in the mail from this lady saying, you know what, Cindy? The Lord told me that you shouldn't marry this guy. He is evil. And if you marry him, it's going to be the worst mistake you've ever met in your life. So Cindy, like, like really a week before our, me- our wedding, is like, what? You're evil. I'm like, no, I'm not. <laughs> she goes, it says so. The Lord told her. I was like, oh, great. Thanks, God. <laughs> Thanks a lot, God. So we just started to process this and, and kind of like, like, what do you do with this? And, and then we, we went down the, and we did the wedding, and I remember she showed up at the wedding. And when she came to shake my hand in the receiving line, like, Inside me, something popped up where I wanted to punch her in the face. But I knew that that would be wrong and evil. So I was just like, I don't know what to do here. So she comes and shakes my hand, and I just put on the fake smile, and I say, hey, thanks for coming. So glad to see you. And you know what she said to me? She says, oh, it's nice to see you smile because you didn't smile for your whole wedding. I'm like, next. (laughs) We had this letter of cursing over our wedding before it happened. And I don't know why, but Cindy kept this, this letter forever. Maybe just to use it for a reference to say, see, she was right. I, like, I don't know. But on our seventh year anniversary, we decided to renew our vows. And when we renewed our vows... The Holy Spirit put it in someone's heart from our church to write a letter of blessing over us. And he wrote this thing that was really cool about, you know what, you guys were a match made in heaven. You guys have been ordained together by the Lord. And he read this, wed- this letter at our seventh year anniversary, and I really believe that that broke something in our lives. And then we took that letter, again, why Cindy kept it, I don't know, but we took that letter after seven years, and we burnt it. And we just said, God, we don't receive this in our lives. You know, I don't know why she said that. Like, she met me once, and, I was, and we had dinner together, and then I went off and did children's ministry. So where that came from, I don't know. And I know in this church, there's been every single one of us have had a story, and maybe Holy Spirit is bringing that back to our memory right now 
of somebody who's wronged us when we've done absolutely nothing to deserve it. My friends, in the words of Elsa, <laughs> let it go. Let it go. Just don't hold it back anymore. Let it go. When we step into the spirit of forgiveness, we're walking in an opposite spirit. And that spirit of love comes deep into our bodies and says, kid, you caught it. I think sometimes we think, and I've, I've run into this talking to people, that people have said, you know what, God can never forgive me because I've done something really, really wrong. Each one of us have things that if we could turn back time, we would just say, God, I want to, I wish I could do that over. I wish I could have a do-over. I want to call a mulligan on that one, God. But Holy Spirit says that when we ask forgiveness, is cast away as far as the east is to the west, never to be remembered again. But yet we remember it. And God is like, when we say to God, like maybe you ask God for forgiveness six, seven, eight, twelve, a thousand times. And Holy Spirit is like, would you stop doing that? Because when you ask me for forgiveness for this again and again and again, he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Because I've forgotten about that. But yet you keep bringing it up, but yet we're just so hard on ourselves. And when we're hard on ourselves, all of a sudden that separation comes in there, not because God is separated from us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, but we separate ourselves from the Lord. And say, I can't be close to you right now. And we run and hide. And Holy Spirit is like, no, stop it. Come to me. Stop being so hard on yourselves. My son paid the price on the cross for your sin. And I want you to walk in freedom. That is love. And God's love is everlasting. It's amazing. But will you drink from it? Or will you hold back because I just feel like I can't? The father, in the story of the prodigal son, tells the older son that his return is cause for celebration and rejoicing. Here Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, essentially saying, when you see the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the other sinners coming to me, you need to rejoice for they were dead and now they're alive, but instead we grumble and complain. My friends, sometimes in Christianity we need to ask ourselves tough questions. And I, I find myself asking me, am I in this story more like the elder brother, the Pharisee, the father, or the prodigal son? You see, God's grace towards sinners is not what troubles me, it's God's grace towards me that I sometimes have difficulty with. My earning narrative is so deeply embedded in my theology template that I can find God's love difficult. What about you? Can you relate with the story of the prodigal son? Who can you relate with? The father, the prodigal, the elder brother? Whoever it is, we need to have our hearts open to the Lord and say, God, if there is a deep understanding of love that you're calling me to, then I want to receive it this morning, God. Because, Lord, I choose not to leave this place like I came in Jesus' name.
but I choose to accept your forgiveness. I choose to embrace your grace. And I choose, Lord, to believe your amazing truth about love. We hope you've been blessed by this teaching from Coley Community Church. Thank you for your continued support of this ministry. Coley Community Church, a place where families come together.